What's up, everybody? Welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for June 11th, 2018. My name's Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I am your host. I'm joined in studio by 538's Kyle Wagner. Hey, Kyle. Hey, Neil. And on the line from Chicago, fellow 538 sports writer Chris Herring. Hey, Chris. What's going on, guys? Uh, how you how you guys feeling? Uh, uh, glad that the NBA Finals are over. Uh, sad that they ended in a sweep. What's uh, what's your thought, man? Like it's been so. We're obviously recording this on the Monday, so it's right. been a few days anyway. But off, it's the finals have been over, so it's it's okay. That's like, true. Yeah, in in our hearts, they they were over, and I think you could hear that in some of our episodes leading up to uh, to this final one of the season. Uh, but in today's episode, we're going to talk about the Golden State Warriors championship sweep, where they rank among the NBA's all-time dynasties, how long they can keep it together, and just in general what their dominance means for the league. We'll also talk about LeBron James's legacy and what yet another NBA Finals loss means for him. But first, let's have a word from our sponsor. Style. Some of us have it, some don't. I'm in the latter category, but just because a sense of style seems elusive doesn't mean it's impossible to attain. There's no time like the present to discover that style that you never knew you had, and you can with a little help from our friends at Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix has reinvented how we find and buy clothes. You just answer some basic questions about your sizes, favorite styles, and budget right from your laptop, smartphone, or tablet. Then your personal stylist springs into action, hand-selecting five brand-new clothing items just just for you. I know personal stylist sounds like something only the rich and famous can afford, but so can you. Stitch Fix's styling fee is only 20 bucks, which is applied as a credit toward anything you keep. And since your personal stylist uses only your preferences to pick your clothes, you're still in complete control. Once your items arrive, try them on and only pay for the ones you keep. If you don't like something or need another size, just send the items back, no questions asked, and shipping is always free both ways. Get your fix whenever you want or sign up to receive scheduled shipments. The choice is yours. So hurry on to stitchfix.com slash the lab to get started now. Keep all five items in your box and you'll get 25% off your entire purchase. That's stitchfix.com slash the lab. One word, T-H-E-L-A-B, stitchfix.com slash the lab. And now, back to the show. Well, that's it. The NBA season is over. The Golden State Warriors made it official with their 101 to 85 win in game four of the NBA Finals on Friday. The win gives the Warriors their third NBA championship in four years and brings a close to this season, which at times seemed like it was really interesting, more interesting than in the past. And yet at the same time, we ended up with the same champion that we've had a lot of in recent years. So guys, first up, uh, what, what's your immediate response to yet another Warriors championship? Uh, sh- how should we be feeling? Should we be in awe of the Warriors and what they've accomplished? And we can get in a little bit of also where they rank uh, relative to other great teams from the past? Or should we, you know, how should we feel about this sort of same result coming up over and over and over and over again? I, I don't think that we can be in total awe of this just based on the fact that this is what a lot of people feared and probably more appropriately expected when you add Kevin Durant to a team that had won 73 games, the most of the NBA history. Um, you know, they've had moments where they've just looked like nobody could touch them. That wasn't quite the case this year. They lost a game in each of the first two series they played. They went seven with the Rockets after falling behind three or two. The irony is that the finals were the only round that they swept. But, you know, they're going to be a juggernaut compared to anybody in the East, especially a team that can't play defense like Cleveland. 
Um, so I'm not in awe of the result. I, I do think that at a certain point, and I think we're at that point now, you do have to start kind of figuring out where they rank compared to everybody else as far as the teams that have done this three times in four years sort of stretch. Um, and I think that they will end up being right near the top once we're finished with them. But I'm not in awe of it yet, particularly because I think we all kind of expected this when they had a chance. Well, Chris, uh, is it is has the statute of limitations run out on that kind of criticism of adding Durant? Like now that we're in year two of him on the team, well, you guys are no. Well, <laughs> I mean, is, does Durant. it does it ever run out? I guess is my question. Is there ever a moment where we can say, okay, we're we're putting aside the fact that they had this super stacked historic team and they all added one of the best players in the league to it, uh, or is that something that's going to hang over uh, this dynasty uh, forever? To me, it hangs over the whole thing forever, um, where it was already a once-in-a-generation kind of team-building thing where you drafted Steph Curry relatively late to get a player of his caliber. You got Draymond Green out of the second round. You got Klay Thompson. You got a core that like fits exactly its system um, after you know Mark Jackson uh, got out of there and Steve Kerr came in and installed the thing. Like It was already a, a generational team, like this, this confluence of events. And then there's another kind of generational like epochal moment where there's basically an uncapped year. The, the cap spikes instead of like the, the smoothing that, you know, the league had proposed, but like there's this influx of money that means the salary cap, which is this, you know, artificial apparatus that's, you know, keeping down the level of talent on teams, uh, just spikes and allows a not reigning, but like recent MVP to just switch teams right over, right across the way. Like this isn't just a thing where, oh yeah, Kevin Durant, like, you know, chose like a good team it was already a team that was like a once in a generation thing and had this random event come in and just change the the entire structure of like the league's finances and then Kevin Durant you know makes a decision on top one of the best players in the league so yes yes it's going to hang there forever but Chris you you tweeted this over the weekend actually that you know, as much as this feels like, I think you compared it to the rich girl from, uh, Willy Wonka and, and Charlie and Chocolate Factory, you know, hiring a bunch of people to try to find the, the golden ticket and then finally finding it and being like, oh, you know, so happy about it. But you follow that up with a tweet that said they did nothing wrong in the process of doing that. I mean, it's sort of like the league itself enabled this to happen and we can't really fault any of the individual actors necessarily for taking advantage of the opportunity that was in front of them, right? No, exactly. I mean, I think that's kind of what Kyle said, too, is that, um, I mean, this is a situation where really if we're blaming one particular party, it's the players' union who didn't want the idea of smoothing. I mean, the players' union, to a fault, always fights for the players to get paid, and that means getting paid now, not getting paid later, not getting paid over time, even though just like when you win the lottery, you basically, isn't it that you get more money over time when you take it mm-hmm. uh, in increments right, yeah. as opposed to taking the lump sum? So, the, the, you know, just like any person who's kind of hungry to, to get their hands on money, they take the whole thing at once. Uh, you know, the league kind of advised against that and was suggesting not to do that, um, probably not knowing that the Durant thing was a possibility. My hunch is that they probably would have uh, pushed a lot harder had they known that something of this magnitude would happen. Um, but anyway, it happened. Um, there was no smoothing. Like Kyle said, the, the salary cap, went up all at one time in, in a way that um, allowed the Warriors to have the caps necessary. And there were a lot of other things. I mean, there were some things that, quite frankly, just the Warriors were lucky with. Um, lucky, depending on how you want to phrase it. Um, Steph Curry having ankle injuries for the first part of his career 
and depressing what otherwise would have been easily a max salary. So, so that's something that just kind of happened. It's not anybody's fault, really. But the Warriors were in position, and this is why I say it was fair and that they did nothing wrong. They drafted all those guys that Kyle was talking about before. They, you know, they hit on a couple of picks that other teams didn't see or didn't think about. And based on that, they, you know, they had guys on salaries that they could control as opposed to having to pay market price for them. And so they deserve that. And, uh, you know, it was, I, I was fighting all this hate from people on Twitter all weekend for <laughs> I that. I saw team. that. But honestly, <laughs> honestly, though, you know, and I've written, you guys know, I've written about the Warriors and kind of been in awe of what they do. Uh, I was in awe of what they did before they added Durant. But then when you add them, opening your finals MVP twice in a row and scoring 43 on a night where uh, Steph plays like dog crap, uh, you know, Honestly, it, it, it does kind of take some of the intrigue out of it, with the exception, again, of that Houston series, which I think is worth mentioning. You know, they're not necessarily running through the league. They didn't even have the best record this year. And maybe if Chris Paul is, is healthy, granted Iguodala is out as well, but if Chris Paul's healthy, maybe they lose that series. They're probably, at some point, expected to lose that series once they fall down 3-2. So I don't know that you can really, you know, curse the, the name of the league right now, but it's... It, it, there isn't that much intrigue if and when they get past a team like Houston. This also does, takes nothing away from them as like a basketball like entity. Like as a pure like basketball playing team, yes, they're they're phenomenal. But it's impossible to talk about them as a basketball playing interest without talking about like these financial and kind of uh, league apparatus kind of things because that's the context in which we view all NBA teams. Whether it's before there was free agency, whether it's immediately after free agency where uh, team budget was the constraint, whether it's at, right after the salary cap when the salary cap was a const- uh, like a very constricting thing, or um, in the luxury tax era, whatever it is, there is an apparatus that is controlling how good a team can be, like at the max level. Because the assumption going in is that you know stars, you know MVPs won't be playing for. Uh, you know, a small fraction of, you know, what, you know, other max players are. There's an assumption that, you know, Kevin Durant isn't going to play for one dollar. He's not playing for a dollar, but like, but that the, that these things are in place because players are going to, you know, command about what they're worth and that is going to put a cap on how good a team is. This team, for a variety of reasons that like Chris and I have just talked about, um, has through luck, through chance, through whatever, um, kind of skirted by those. And so it's it, yes, as a basketball team, of course they're up there with all, the all times. But a lot of those all time teams didn't have things break co- on quite so many axes as as this one has. Sure, that makes sense. Uh, although I do feel like we don't necessarily bring up some of these knocks when it comes to you know the Bill Russell era Celtics, for instance, of the '60s, who had an absurd number of Hall of Famers on their rosters, more than probably the Warriors will end up with uh, when it's all said and done. And we don't talk about. It doesn't feel like we talk about previous eras teams in the same conversation of those constraints and the, and the circumstances in which they were created as much as we talk about maybe this particular Warriors team and maybe the heat, you know, when, when Wade and Bosch and LeBron were there. And I don't know if that's maybe, uh, just a recency bias thing or maybe we're more attuned to those things than ever or maybe it is just Nobody has tried to exploit the particular uh, loopholes of of the salary cap and the various different ways you can kind of put together these super teams until recently because that has been sort of a recent experiment. But should that affect the way that we view the Warriors in a historic context compared with those other teams that you could – you mentioned, Chris, the other teams that won three championships in four years. They're in that group. I think there's only seven in the history of the NBA. Are we going to view the Warriors differently than those teams? Uh, 
ultimately, or is that something that as time goes on and maybe going to that point about the statute of limitations on the outrage over something like signing KD, we will have more of an appreciation for them once it's maybe once it's over, I guess. I, I'm curious about that. I mean, I think, like we've said, it's it's such a different example. I mean, like you said, the Celtics um, and their situation, the fact that the Lakers were able to, able to draft Magic Johnson uh, at a time where they were already really, really good. I mean, it, it, it's interesting because I think as time moves forward, you do kind of let these things fade in the obscurity a little bit, and you just kind of appreciate the team more because it's so rare to see it in the first place maybe once every day that is this good or has this much talent on it. So I don't know. I mean, I, I do feel like the outrage was kind of at a fever pitch uh, and it's something that, you know, we're kind of at a point in our lives, the three of us, where this is the most we've ever paid attention to basketball. And so it feels crazy, just like the Miami thing felt crazy. It might not feel crazy to someone else who's seen this sort of thing happen. Maybe not this sort of thing exactly, but has seen this sort of collection of talent before. Um I honestly don't know. I feel like it'll kind of be a mixture uh, just because this is a team that had the best record of all time in a regular season and then added uh, this kind of talent onto it. And so it was unprecedented from that standpoint, but I do kind of feel like if they were somehow to win the next seven titles, which won't happen by the way, but if they were to do that, that I, I think that um, at some point you would have to stop saying, but Kevin Durant signed there and that's not fair. That's crazy. Because at some point, you just have to respect the level of basketball that's being played. If it's that much better than anyone else's level, I think at some point you'd have to kind of let that go. I mean, the the closest analog, and it isn't really that close, uh, is if you take something like when Bill Walton went to the Celtics, and if he hadn't had all those foot injuries, and he was just playing like, you know, his MVP level self, and just kind of merged onto that team. With Bird, and, and Parrish, and McHale, mm-hmm. and so forth, plus Bill Walton. Plus, plus, yeah, now in his prime, Bill Walton. And Bill Walton, unlike that E6 team, was still ridiculous. But, I mean, so that team also goes to, to what Neil was saying earlier, though, where, yeah, there are a lot of things that have to break right for, for a team to, to go where you get Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish in the same lopsided deal because you're Red Arbach and, like, magic. And whatever. I think that team actually was one of the driving factors for putting together the salary cap in the first place. There wasn't a salary cap before the mid-1980s, and we always talk about bird exceptions. That's named after Larry Bird yeah. because one of, one of the only exceptions that they kind of built in at first, especially, was a provision to let you re-sign your own players and kind of keep together whatever core uh, of a team that you have. But before that, you know, teams could build by signing, you know, whoever was available and the draft was very different too. They had, you know, draft picks that were territorial based on if you went to college in the same area as a team, uh, you know, had rights over. And so the game of basketball, I guess my point is, has been, uh, it was very different in the past than it is now. And each era has its own particular strange sort of unfair or, or exploitable uh, rules that that we just happen to be in the moment of the Warriors kind of making their uh, best use of the ones that are present right now. And this is a bummer, but like, so I guess the other uh, example is again with that Celtics team where they were adding Len Bias in that 86 yes. draft uh, right after they had one of the best teams of all time. So we might be talking about a little different if he hadn't passed right after the draft too. And maybe there is something also about the players choosing, this came up a lot with I think at first when LeBron James joined the Heat of this idea of why is it okay when the uh, some GM 
chooses to sign someone and you know when Danny Ainge built the I think the original of the super teams of this current era or the team that sort of kicked everything off the 2008 Celtics it was bringing together players that were absurdly talented on the same roster but it was done by the team's front office uh, when when LeBron signed and then later subsequently when KD signed it was a case of a player choosing his own destiny and kind of building the team for himself and you know there's a lot of things that go into that African-American players, you know, uh, and and fans judging them maybe based on, you know, making choices for themselves. There, there's a lot of baggage to unpack there, but I do think that that is a distinction that might also fuel some of the outrage. I mean, so that, that to me, and I, I think maybe we would have gotten this later in the show anyway, is what sets this apart a little bit, is that the league can only do so much really to stop team from generating this sort of talent, accumulating this much talent, when the players are actively deciding to kind of undercut their own salaries. And, you know, to, to a certain extent, that's what the Warriors have done with like more than five or six guys at this point. I mean, so we, we talked about Steph before and how there was kind of a confluence of, of different things that happened with his injuries. Uh, but you go beyond just him and you remember how they brought in Iguodala, the fact that he took less money than he could have had on the open market that year and I think forced a trade there. You think about somebody like Clay Thompson, who I think might have actually gotten max money but didn't actually sign a max deal in, in terms of what percentage of the cap he was taking up. And so there was him. Um, you look at guys now, Sean Livingston took way less money than he could have taken if he'd just gone to whatever team was going to pay him the most money. You think about the minimum guys they've gotten. They've got Zaza Pachulia, for instance, who uh, you know he took a minimum deal in a year where he ranked I think in the top 10 in double doubles the season before. Um, I know I'm forgetting somebody else. We got too, David West. We got Clay yeah, David West is a good one. We got Clay Thompson yeah. in- implying that he's going to take a bunch less. So Clay is the, the next big question for them because I, I even wrote this in my story and linked something in there. It's a, as of the beginning of the season, according to Marcus Thompson, who works for, who's really plugged in with the Warriors, who works for the Athletic, he's written a book on Steph. Uh, Steph Curry, and he wrote a story as recently as a month ago or so um, saying that back in October that the Warriors and Clay were discussing an extension um, that would see Clay take up to $50 million less than his max potential as far as a contract, which is nuts. But after he was asked about that report, Clay's father actually stepped in and said, you know, actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Clay is not going to really be addressing his future until the summer of 2019, meaning that, you know, any extension talks are kind of off the table. Um, that Marcus Thompson's report was about a meeting that happened in October and Clay talking to the words about that in October or September of last year, but now that he's not going to talk about that. And, and keep in mind, if Clay Thompson makes another all NBA team, he'd be eligible for a Supermax contract. So that's a massive difference. Like if we're talking about him taking 50 million less versus the idea that he's looking to maximize his money. He's repeatedly said that it's so rare to find winning like this at this level that he's willing to do what it takes to, to keep that, even if it means taking less money. But if his tune changes significantly, then you know the next summer Draymond Green is a free agent as well. Um, that might speak to how much they're willing to pay to keep this team together, even if they can theoretically do it. Uh, if the taxes get really, really uh, prohibitive, it, it becomes a more interesting question. But to this point, they've repeatedly taken less money in a way that actually reminds me of a team that hasn't been talked about as a dynasty, the Spurs, because the Spurs never won more than one title in, in a two-year span. Um, but they also always had these guys that 
particularly when they weren't in their prime, but even in some cases when they were, guys that were willing to take less money than they could have gotten on the open market. And so if they continue to do that, I'm not really sure how the league can really do anything at that point when they just keep taking less money on on team-friendly deals, even in situations where they don't have to. So the Spurs are an interesting case where uh, there were a few guys who took less, but uh, the one that all, that, that's gotten brandied about a lot recently is the the late Duncan deal, where that wasn't as much of a sweetheart deal as it seemed, because he was actually coming off in, uh, like the first serious injury of his career. He had missed a bunch of time, so that was uh, pretty close to market. But the, for me, the thing that separates the trade teams, uh, so the Ubuntu Celtics versus uh, the, the Heat and whatever else, uh, and now these Warriors, are the free agency decisions don't seem like always seem like they're in good faith where keeping in the spirit of the salary cap in general the idea is that everyone is under the same the same rules uh the same rules are governing all these teams and all these contracts seeking their own right. market value for themselves but but when it's a thing like the heat coming together and everyone takes a little bit less money and using this other uh stipulation the CBA which is the minimum salary stipulation where you can sign whoever you want as long as they take the league minimum well then that seems a little different that seems like okay so you guys are all uh, well, depressing your, your value a little bit or a lot, uh, because, you know, the max salary, uh, the idea of max salary in general also allows this, because if, you know, individual players are allowed to, you know, be paid whatever that you want, you really can't afford to put all those guys together. So that seems less fair, uh, to, to everyone else, and I think that's, that gets you a little bit more. And so, and then with Kevin Durant, well, well, no, the, the cap just went up. The cap went up to a preposterous amount, so the best player could go to the best team, that also feels like not fair. Like these things are put into place in order to stop something like this happening. Something random occurs. You slide right through the, through the doors closed behind you like that. Yeah, that's going to annoy people. I think it's going to annoy people for a long time. And that's different from assembling pieces from other parts, other parts of the league that have been those contracts have been put together on what seems like more good faith. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's a great point. And your point about the, the maximum salary sort of feeding into all this is well taken as well, because I mean, that's something that a lot of people, you know, kind of NBA wonks uh, in the media and so forth have said for a long time that this is a direct consequence of players choosing things other than money uh, in a lot of ways as a consideration to pick where they where they sign with because everyone can pretty much offer some version some something in the neighborhood of the same amount of money uh, and I mean Chris you wrote also about in your story over the weekend. About the various other things, though, that can keep a team like the Warriors, even a team that seems to be, you know, great chemistry and, and can fit all the parts under the salary cap. All of these dynasties have eventually been derailed by either injuries or infighting or something like that. How do the Warriors compare in that regard? And does that say that they might have a longer shelf life than maybe some of the other teams from the past? Well, I'm curious to see some of that. I mean, it was interesting that, that David West, um, said, I, I don't know if he said it to Mark Spears, but I know Mark Spears' tweet was the one that blew up. Um, said basically, he was like, you'd be amazed if you knew all the stuff that didn't come out this year. Um, and as soon as that quote went viral, kind of, I immediately assumed that it meant in terms of infighting. Um, I mean, there were awkward moments during the season where um, Kevin Durant kind of took on an enormous share of that offense. And um, you know, and I, I remember being blown away just a couple weeks ago when TNT aired uh, a segment during a timeout where uh, Steve Kerr was trying to talk to Kevin Durant about moving the ball better early in possession and not settling for really difficult shots. And 
he was using Michael Jordan as an example, you know, in, in Kerr's own career with the Bulls. And as he was talking to him, Durant kind of started walking away before the conversation was really over. And that was interesting to me. I, I don't know how eye-opening it was, but it was interesting to watch. And, you know, it makes you wonder just kind of how often this sort of thing happens during the course of the season, uh, particularly when they're trying to kind of uh, balance the offense between Steph running it and Kevin Durant running it and maybe breaking it at times by, by running ISOs. Uh, but, you know, they, they had stretches during the season where they just looked not focused or they didn't look totally um, gelled, you know, the way that we've seen over the last year. And so if there were things where there was infighting or something like that, I mean, we wouldn't necessarily know to what extent, but, you know, Kerr himself as a coach doesn't seem like someone that needs the credit or the validation in a way that Phil Jackson, you know, did need or that other people that we've seen in the past did need. I don't get that impression quite as much with the Warriors. Uh, you know, Steph now has won three titles and has no finals MVP. I do think he was gunning for it on Friday yes, night. Yes, definitely, um, you could tell. But but I don't know that it, you know, that it, it's something that just, like, eats away at his core, the fact that he didn't get it. Uh, Draymond will be an interesting case, too. And I feel like, honestly, Draymond might be the guy that that kind of unravels you know, unravels the, the organization if he decides he wants a ton of money. I, I don't know. I mean, it's too early to tell, but, you know, there have been good signs in the past of how much they're willing to put aside to just try to win and enjoy winning at a level that is really, really rare and, you know, over time maybe unprecedented in the NBA. Yeah, I mean, Draymond is just turned, Draymond just turned 28. The, yeah. the sheer age of this team, and you wrote about this too, Chris, uh, is, is young, at least comparatively speaking, looking at like the 90s Bulls and teams like that. Or even looking at the Heat recently, who came together relatively young, but by the time they, you know, had had their four year run, uh, no, they were in their 30s. Like they were, they were, you know, the, the, the tread had come off a little, to, to some point in a way that, it hasn't really for this team yet. Like, yeah, there are times where, you know, Steph looks banged up. Draymond hasn't looked exactly the same this year. Uh, KD, you know, gets down. But like, yeah, that's going to happen, uh, to, in some respect when you're playing entire extra seasons worth of playoff games. But they're still so young that it all, it doesn't matter as much. Like they're able to bounce back more to where, no, like a lot of te- a lot of these teams, when they're, you know, making these deep runs for four or five years in a row, they just look broken by the end. Like Warriors, not even close. Yeah. And for what it's worth, uh, according to our ELO ratings, this was the best four year period, four consecutive years any team ever had in NBA history. And also, it was pretty much neck and neck with the 96 to 98 Bulls three-peat as the most impressive sort of segment of three or more championships in 10 or fewer years, according to ELO also. Uh, interestingly, the Spurs uh, run from 99 to 08, uh, which includes their first four championships and then an extra year at the end of that, was actually third most impressive, uh, according to research I did for a story that should come out uh, on Monday. But I think that does speak to the Warriors' place in history, no matter how we feel about how they actually formed this team, uh, we should be in awe, at least, of seeing a team operate at that level for this sustained amount of time. I don't think we've ever seen a team or seldom have seen a team play so well for so long uh, in an uninterrupted period. I mean, all that's true. I mean, I think that uh, this is this is the greatness of the Warriors to where we've thrown their like all time greatness. You're just out like, no, no, we don't want to talk. But of course, yeah, we literally buried that like, lead actually uh, for the very end of this segment almost. But but it's it's taken as a given. It's prima facie that like they are yes, just the they are the best team of this generation. They are the, going to be, I think, for my money, they're the best like pure assembly of basketball skills ever, uh, like kind of produced. 
And yeah, they would probably blow the doors off to, off of just about any team in history. Yeah, I mean that that's probably the the best way to put it. And, and honestly, the one thing that I mentioned in my story that I, if I was another team, I'd worry about too. They're not just this wildly athletic team. This is just a team that shoots so much better than any other team we've ever seen. That when you think about that, it probably lessens how athletic you have to be to be able to compete. Just because. Um, if anything, they're kind of forcing teams to run around uh, defensively just to stop their ability to move the ball and to stop them from shooting from half court. And, um, you know, when you talk about someone like Dwayne Wade and wondering how some of these players are going to age, one of the first things you always look at is how well can they shoot? Because uh, Wade is someone that was so athletic in his prime that once he can't do that anymore and get to the basket, uh, what does that mean for the way his game is going to age? The Warriors should be fine. I mean, they obviously need some level of athleticism and some level of, uh, you know, Steph being able to get to the basket and getting there. But, I mean, that really shouldn't be a problem for the most part, at least not for a few years. Steph is the oldest in this group, by the way. Yeah, he just had his 30th birthday, which they got a hangover day for. Uh, so, yeah, he's still young enough that should be fine. But Draymond Green is the other one that you have to worry about to where whenever we talk about, you know, the most important warrior or whatever, a lot of times he comes up because he does things that no one else on that team does, that no one else in the league does, frankly. That, like, if you're looking at players who can play the Draymond role, well, it's a very short list. Like, it might be just LeBron. It's LeBron, and that, I think, yeah. And, like, Giannis eventually, like, if he gains, like, 40 pounds. And that's about it. And that's a scary thing where that sort of player, we we don't think of it as such because he's, you know, he's this power forward who's played uh, center. But that, that's in the modern NBA. In the more recent, in the, you know, kind of less recent past, but still recent, we have players like Gerald Wallace. We have, you know, other players who have, you know, Larry all, Johnson. Yeah. Who know. have been all over the court, who have been about his size, have had about his skill sets and, you know, played very good defense, been, been, you know, switching and whatever else. And if you can't shoot and he's kind of lost his shot, uh, it's the Sean Marion aging curve, the Sean Gerald Marion, Wallace yeah, aging curve point. where, this kind of do-it-all utility player who's like holding together a great team. You know, Jared Walsh wasn't holding together a great team, but he played on good ones. Uh, all of a sudden, <laughs> that can just turn into, oh, all, all you were up here at like 85 on all the sliders, and now you're down here at like 78. And th- that's a very different player. And so if if Draymond, you know, stays at the Draymond level, then yeah. But this is the kind of player that like of all of all the players, he's young. They're all young to keep an eye on like the aging curve like yeah the one that can't really shoot and the one that you know is counted on to to cover all this ground and to to be this kind of sort of defender that we've never seen before yeah and if anything has kind of come up from research about the value of those all-around players it's that uh that versatility sort of compounds upon itself so if it's multiplicative if you lose in one area your overall value sort of drops more than you would just expect if it was just additive for you know points or for rebounds or assists by themselves so it it will be interesting to see how a player like him ages uh but this also provides a good point to pivot to uh the player we were just talking about as sort of a super up version of Draymond. Uh, I hope that's not too rude. That insulting is too, no, too or far. rude too far. to uh, <laughs> LeBron James. Uh, but we have to talk about LeBron. Uh, of course, 
his Cavaliers lost in a sweep. This was the sixth time that he's lost in his nine trips to the NBA Finals, and that record really stands out a lot in comparison with the other players that he's put up against in the greatest of all time conversation. You know, you've got Jordan, of course, who was six and zero in the finals. Tim Duncan is five and one. Kobe five and two. Shaq four and two. Even Curry has built a three and one record so far in the finals. And then you've got LeBron, who's lost six times. Uh, and I think that that is probably the number one stumbling block uh, in his candidacy to be the greatest player of all time. But at the same time, his teams have seldom ever been favored, if not being huge underdogs when they've gone into the finals. So guys, what do you make of LeBron's legacy in regard to these finals losses? Should it matter at all? Are we past the point of ring counting? And, and should we just look at his great body of, of work, uh, whether it's, you know, the statistics that he puts up and the way that we've seen him will these underpowered teams to victory night in and night out, the durability? There's so many things going for LeBron, but it does seem like like this one thing that is an important measuring stick that we've used in the history of the game to judge players is still something that's sort of hanging over him for better or for worse. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm going to agree with Kyle here really quickly and just beat you up for the whole souped-up <laughs> souped person. <laughs> I was, was trying to make a, a, a segue. Come on, this is podcast hosting I know. here. Uh, even with the segue, man. Um, I, I mean, I, I think it's so stupid to kind of knock LeBron for this. Yes, you, you would have loved to have seen him extend the series the way that he and Kyrie did last year in Game 4 by just going off. Um, let, let me interrupt I mean, you real fast, real talking? fast. Chris, do you, uh, you, buy, do you buy the hand thing? I, I do. I, I think that his hand was all messed up because I thought it was his eye after game one where his his shot was all off for a while. And I was like, oh, he can't see. Yeah, oh, we no. mentioned depth perception yeah. possibly. But now we know this new thing about punching the whiteboard after J.R. Smith. So you, you buy this, he I was, buy it. He was blowing a lot of shots that just like, you know, even layups or yes, he was dealing with contact and stuff like that. But he was blowing a lot of easy shots. And I think Ben Alomar took, the you know, a number that we use in a lot of our stories where the quantified shot quality and, and kind of the expected shot quality um, and, and expected shot percentage uh, that someone makes in a game based on if an average player took the shot versus someone like LeBron taking the shot and how often does he make it. And he was like something like 20 points above expectation in the first game and then three points above expectation in the second game and then all the way down in the game four that kind of his – performance dropped in, in terms of what you would expect for him to shoot from the basket or at the basket in each of those games. And so, I mean, something was up. Uh, I I actually took in my notes of game four that, you know, I saw someone tweet out that this was the fewest shots he'd taken in an elimination game, dating all the way back to that Dallas series that he lost, and that he only took three shots in the second half. And I'm like, all right, something's up here. And I wrote that in my notes, that his aggression level just wasn't right and didn't look normal for him. And so I didn't equate injury with it necessarily, but I figured maybe it's just kind of throwing in the towel. Um, his hand wasn't totally right. I don't think it would have necessarily made a difference in the series anyway. Maybe, you know, one of the other games after game one, but really, and I, I said this in my story after game one, they really needed to take game one because that series was just such a, a lopsided mess to begin with that once you lose that game and the demoralizing nature of it, especially once we saw the clip of him sitting on the bench between, you know, regulation and overtime starting and just how distraught it seemed like he was. 
that was out of character for LeBron, let alone the idea of punching a dry erase board or whatever it was. I think it tells you how much of a toll that took on him. I know people are going to use that as a way to say, well, it was his fault. How stupid can you be? Whatever. Sports are an emotional thing. Uh, when you realize how thin the line is between winning and losing in a situation like that against an all-time great team, I'd probably be frustrated too. I might not punch anything, but I'd be frustrated, so I get it. Um, but I'm not sure he looked totally right in, in the series after that. It was clear to pick up on at some points, but I didn't necessarily equate it with injury. Um, but it's definitely something that we noticed, especially after he'd said it. It made a lot of sense. Which is so funny to say about a series in which he still had one of the best individual performances of any player in an NBA Finals in history. And yeah, a lot of that came from the game one where he scored 51 points, but he was still, you know, he's putting up triple doubles in various games after that. And to think that he did it all on what he calls basically a broken hand after that incident. I don't know if that makes us, you know, if that changes the way we think about this performance, but I I do think that this series was sort of a microcosm of LeBron's entire finals career for the most part, which is you go in as a heavy underdog, you do everything you can individually. Uh, J.R. Smith messes up a crucial game, like you mentioned, Chris, and uh, you can't win. You know, you're in a sort of situation where you're put in an impossible circumstance and you're just fighting valiantly against it, but you don't really ever come out on top. Overall for LeBron, for for his, you know, kind of body of finals work i think that if there's a case to be made that like oh he should have done better like where he uh he had the best team wasn't it's it's obviously the 2011 2011 where where if you're going to make the comparison with jordan uh, jordan never had the best team and lost jordan never had the best team and was the best player on the best team and disappeared for an entire series and when we're you're measuring like greatness which is you know not like a it's not a counting stat then you have to look at you know individual moments and such and so there were moments in 2015 where oh if you know if overtime goes differently in game one or if you know they have kevin love and have kyrie irving for the duration of that series as we saw in the next year oh yeah that, that actually would have looked different like they might have you know taken that series the 2016 a bunch of things had to go right for them to win that and you know obviously we've been talking about all the very unlikely events that went into making the warriors the warriors by 2017 Sure. If we're talking about individual moments, that's one where it's not the the entire body of all the losses, but like there is a case like within that of 2011 is a thing that like is a real mark against him. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I mean, Neil, I, I saw your your story and, and kind of referencing the amount of titles that LeBron has won kind of versus what he would be expected to win in a normal situation, given what, you know, how his team stacked up with the opponent. And really what I feel like without you having said it in your story, is that um, the 2016 title that he won and the 3-1 comeback that Cleveland had, that pretty much kind of uh, was a wash or kind of made up for the, the really horrendous Dallas loss um, in the finals. And that he, you know, he's won a couple of titles and that, that one kind of made up for one that he lost, uh, that he should have won. And so that's, that's kind of where I'm at is that, you know, he, he, he did have a series where, his team probably was better going in and should have won and had more talent and everything like that. And LeBron just kind of had no show games or had a no show series, but it's really hard for me to look at this situation where we basically say, look, uh, it's an academic conversation for the most part as to whether Golden State is going to win a title or not. Houston obviously had something to say about that and almost took them down, but at no point at all during the season, did we really expect for Cleveland to do it? Um, And so I don't know how I can hold that against LeBron. There were times where really you looked at LeBron's 
supporting cast and looked at it, I don't know that they would have made the playoffs without LeBron. And so it's kind of ridiculous to expect LeBron to be that great. And the standard that he's held to, I mean, I was sitting next to people during the finals um, at those games where they're like, man, LeBron's not doing anything tonight. And you look up and he's got basically like a 25-point triple-double. I get that he isn't doing what we expect necessarily. And I get that, you know, 25-point triple-double is not 51-8-8. But the, the threshold that we've kind of put on this guy is insane. And he's not always going to be able to get it done. And I think that should go without saying that, you know, for at least one or two of those rounds in the East, if not all three, he had the worst team. It was just that he was so incredible by himself that he could kind of drag his team across the finish line and manage to do it. Uh, so really quickly before we close up, I, we do have to talk about LeBron's upcoming free agency decision. Uh, and I was wondering, guys, first of all, where do you think, given what we know now, and we don't know as much as we will eventually, uh, what do you think provides him the best opportunity, the best fit, the best talent around him? Will we not know that uh, until we sort of get deeper into the throes of free agency? And also, in light of what we've talked about all season, the types of players that seem to function around LeBron, should he go after that template that we've discussed before of the types of players that he usually plays with? Or should he break that mold and try to do something different? And could he even do something different? I know that's a lot. So with how little information it's re- we have, it's really hard to to say like who is who is a real contender. Who well, is, Vegas is there. already baking those into their odds for next season, though. Right. Uh, but but as far as you know, you know what's actually what's actually happening on the ground. Like I I I can't really tell you like what's what's real, what's not. I mean, yeah, he'd be a great Celtic if if the Celtics rumors are are true. He'd fit right into that team. But like they'd have that- to get rid of Kyrie, I guess. Yeah, I mean, or they would have a really awkward re- – like, yeah, so I'm not sure. But but as far as what type of team he should play for, I think it's pretty clear that he needs to find a younger team than the ones he's traditionally been on. And so if by some chance like the Lakers scenario happens where he and be it Paul George or whomever else come together, well, they have Kyle Kuzma. They have, they have younger role players who can, you know, fill that – a shooting, uh, who can, who can shoot for him, like be the shooters that he needs, but also can play some defense, can run around, like can, can be active enough that they can actually, you know, get open, unlike Kyle Korver against the Warriors. And yeah, like the, the, the thing with LeBron is that he's played with, you know, a bunch of 34, 35, 36 year olds over the past however long. And he seems to be at the point in his career where he needs youth around him to kind of make up for, for whatever he has lost. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's tough because, I mean, I think the thing he needs very clearly, um, and I, I tweeted this out during game four, and I was like, this play to me kind of epitomizes what's so wrong with the Cavs right now and what they're clearly deficient in. Uh, there was a play where uh, Kyle Korver sat and just kind of stared down Larry Nance in the post and then looped in this, this entry pass, and Larry Nance was basically double teamed into the post, and it's like, why the hell are you fighting so hard to get a ball into the post to Larry Nance Jr. when he's double teamed? And of course the pass got stolen. And so that's kind of the offense that we're looking at with LeBron out there without, you know, Kevin Love is a great player, um, a great offensive player, but he's not someone, you know, he's not someone that creates a whole lot of shots for you. Um, that's just not what he is, at least not the way he was utilized with this team. And, and keep in mind, he came in as a third star of this team because Kyrie Irving was kind of the, the other lead ball handler with LeBron, it tells you how much they miss Kyrie, and it tells you how much LeBron needs another playmaker. Um, 
a lot of these teams that we talk about these kind of in conversation with, be it the Lakers or um, the idea that he would go to Houston, he wouldn't have to do that much offensively. He'd have guys that could kind of handle the ball for him. But at the same time, like we've never seen LeBron in a situation where he really didn't have to have the ball in his hands. Uh, and so if he goes to Houston and he's playing with somebody like James Harden and Chris Paul, all of a sudden, you know, it was one thing to watch these two guys split the responsibility um, and I think that worked out really well. But if you're trying to split that three ways, um, I think it would take time adjusting to all that. Uh, for LeBron, he'd probably like it. It would probably save him physically in a way that he definitely didn't get this year. Um, I'm sure they could make it work and would make it work, but um, it'd be different. It would be a lot different to see him have the ball in his hands that little uh, for what they like to do. Um, and, and I think the Lakers situation would be interesting. Um, because the ball handler, you know, figuring Lonzo would not be a guy traded in a situation like that. Lonzo is a young, young player who's still figuring it out. A lot of those guys are, and we just saw some guys come over from that team, obviously, who weren't completely ready in every situation. Clarkson's probably not fair compared to everybody else, but, you know, how would he do with a guy that is essentially a second-year point guard? How would he do in a situation where we're assuming he'd probably get another star, another max-level star? Who is that person? Is it Paul George? Um, you know, and the rest of that team being very, very green and a coach that is still pretty green as well. Um, so I don't know. I, I mean, I have a lot of questions about wherever he'd go. Uh, I tend to think that going West doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless he's going to the Rockets because everything else kind of seems like it would be a real work in progress to, uh, to figure stuff out. And I think he does at least like making the trips to the finals in a way to kind of keep that record going. Um, it's much harder to do that in the West where you might have to play Golden State before you even reach that point. And so, uh, well, you, where you would have to play Golden State before you could reach the final. So I tend to think that he's more likely to stay in the East, but I don't think the East options make a whole lot of sense, particularly Philly. I'm not sure how much sense that makes, even though they probably have either the most or second most talent in, in that conference outside of, um, outside of Boston. Yeah, like LeBron can't play with Simmons full stop, I think. Um, but this is good. LeBron to the Knicks is confirmed. Uh, we can move on into the next segment. Yeah, um, the, but according to uh, let's see where these odds are. So, so there's a lot of shady odds out there on where LeBron will go. Uh, these are they were posted at CBS Sports, but they're from Bet DSI. They have the Knicks as the fourth leading uh, favorite to to sign LeBron after the Lakers, Sixers, and Heat. For all so, the reasons Chris and I just laid out. I mean, yeah, uh, it's, it's going to be fascinating to no, see just stealing money from stupid Knicks. Fans. <laughs> um, but to to Chris's point, I think that the the Rockets thing, which is the 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 one that's come up the most uh, as far as a, you know realistic you know title contention whatever uh it's complex it's complex for a few reasons for for the ones he laid out but also uh like getting into like it's not just lebron not having the ball it's what he does when he doesn't because when the rockets got into trouble in that series against the warriors it's when they were just standing around kind of not doing anything just waiting for for something to happen kind of like lebron has his teammates do when you know he is you know he's the one on the ball and when he's not on the ball, like LeBron just doesn't really move. Um, it's obviously because he's taken on this enormous share of the, of the work, but with, it, it's the same thing with Russell Westbrook, with, with these other stars that have the ball all the time. They don't move off the ball. They aren't muscles that have been built up over time to, uh, just be able to throw an off ball screen on a whim to spring your, you know, fourth leading scorer. That's something that like the Warriors do that isn't really common to other stars that are always on the ball. And so this is a reason that, the 
the 2008 Celtics came together really well because Kevin Garnett already was doing that. Ray Allen already was running off of screens and Paul Pierce could just kind of operate as he did. Whereas other, whereas the, the heat after them, whereas the, the thunder as we're seeing now, when you try to put it together and even the Warriors with Kevin Durant, uh, a star who's used to having a lot of the ball and not having to set off ball screens, use off ball screens, uh, just kind of, uh, make runs to the basket. That lack of, you know, those like kind of, Secondary muscles uh, is a big thing to where I'd be curious how it worked. It would obviously work eventually, but but it's something to keep in mind also if he's going to go play with another ball dominant star. Yeah, the it seems like the fit on these super teams is something that still the science of it hasn't exactly been been figured out completely yet. So it should be really interesting to see where LeBron lands and how he fits in with his new teammates if they are new at all. Maybe he could stay in Cleveland. In any event. That will do it for our show, and that'll also do it for the 2018 season. We're going to take a break for the off season. Thank you so much for spending the season with us. Please stay subscribed to this feed for news about the future of the lab and also 538 Sports Podcasting in general. Our podcast producers this season have been Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. You can keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are also there. Could be the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Be sure to review and rate the show. Let us know what you thought. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening this year. It has been a fun ride this season. 